any parents to teach you about manners? Yeah, they told me that... If Speaking you whilst you've got your mouth full is the thing that you should be doing. They said to me, you should it's always show gratitude. Well. Yeah, but you know and if you've did. eaten good cake, you should tell the man who made the cake it was a good cake. Three. Could you maybe wait until you've actually managed to three. swallow that cake? Three slices of cake were put down on plates with forks. Rory and I pick up the implement, start to eat our cake. Steve steamed straight in with a hand. My view, did not he even, inhaled the He cake. didn't even know what the fork was. Chinch. Yes. Chinch. You were hungry. My view of the forks was obstructed by my laptop. <laughs> You're so not having to worry excuses. about excuses. the technological requirements of recording this podcast. You eat custard with your fingers, man. What you, <laughs> come on now. You Go should to, know. Oh, I didn't see the spoon. You should know full well that I do not eat custard at all. You don't eat custard. Don't tell me that's another one of your... I don't eat custard. You don't eat custard. It's got a wife. No. It's no go zone. You drink custard. God, no. It's horrific. Look at it. <laughs> I love custard. It oh, looks love custard. custard. Vanilla pod custard. Oh. <laughs> yes, please. Please drizzle snot all over my pudding. You are an odd man. You really are an odd man. So you're starting to hear somebody else say it now, and that legitimises it. Chocolate cake. But I don't like chocolate. don't like the taste of chocolate in... in, in what? I don't like the taste of custard. No, you're talking about it looking like snot. I don't like the taste of it either. It doesn't look like snot. It certainly hasn't the consistency of snot or taste like snot. Not that I've tasted snot. <laughs> I did when I was a kid. I used to eat my own bogeys. But anyway, we, all kids do that, don't they? We all, we all are guilty of eating Maybe Steve bogeys. did it a bit too much, which is why I won't have any custard now. Possibly. Steve is very hands-on with his food, I've noticed. He's... Uh, it's, Appreciative, it's, yeah. it's yeah. you that doesn't like chocolate cake. Yeah, yeah. But he likes cake and he likes chocolate. Ridiculous, ridiculous human being. But you wouldn't have custard on chocolate cake. That that would be do. again that sacrilege. I would you could do. Of course I you would could, probably have the chocolate cake if it came with custard because it but would drown out the. That's chocolate. not a thing. You don't do that. That just doesn't happen. It's in the Bible. Ever. It's in the Bible. We don't do that. The all cake should be left to stand on its own two feet, and that was an excellent cake, Hugh. With two feet. No, no. It was a, just a Victoria sponge with coconut. But it well, was you, nice. You're very hard on you. You weren't completely happy with the baking process because you felt... I forgot I forgot to put baking powder in, so it was a little flatter than it should have been. I think it worked, mm. though. I think it might have been too much had it been larger. Well, it was cooked also at the weekend, and I can tell you it was not too much. Okay. It was not surprisingly unstale, given that it was cooked at the weekend. <laughs> no, a different cake. Ah. You know, you know on Bake Off when they practice? They say they practice in between shows. Yeah, I don't like it when they do that. I practiced for you guys at the weekend when I made it for just Gemma and I. Okay. And then it was kind of taken you to Gemma's work. You ate an entire cake? No, because it was taken to Gemma's work. Okay, fine. Um, and then, uh, having practiced it and being very, very pleased with the results and thinking that's good enough for the boys, mm. I then cooked it incorrectly for the boys. I, I like that. I like how seriously he takes our visits. Yes. That he, he tries out the product on his wife first to yeah. make sure that it's... It's at its best for the most it's important suitable, people in his yeah. life. Mm. Yeah. This is Seppi Spenny, the podcast where four friends talk football over very fine food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are three gentlemen with their most suitable dating ad abbreviations attached. Rory Smith, GSOH. Stephen Wyeth, HNG. And Andy Hinchcliffe, BDSM. The uh, food today, do you know... I don't know what any of those mean. I, I know what... Gas central heat? <laughs> what? <laughs> Good sense of humour. Uh-huh. HNG? H H N G. Has no grace, horny net geek, and what? BDSM. What? No, let's not uh, dwell on that one. The food today, as has already been mentioned, is coconut cake. It has been enjoyed by most people. Uh, the football is chinch. Football is, it's a wonderful topic to talk about. Let's do more of it. Let's do it now. Well, today is part two of our conversation about conversations. Last week, we considered how fans talk to other fans. This week, it is about how fans and the media talk to each other. Before we get back into that, a diversion or two, um, which comes via emails sent to seppiesmenu at gmail.com or any kind of correspondence you send to Twitter or Facebook. Shane Thomas has excelled himself with this contribution. Hi, SPM. I have some entries for your ongoing Managers Most Likely To series. Remember, we're not allowed to have the answer Sean Dyche, Nigel Pearson or Graham Potter. <laughs> These are from Shane. Manager most likely to hold up the queue at the supermarket because he's demanding that his nectar points be added to the purchase even though he left his nectar card at home. Phil Neville. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if you read a recent piece in uh, the Manchester News um, uh, interviewing Julie Neville, you might think that Phil Neville doesn't know what Nectar Points or indeed a supermarket are. Uh, manager most likely to be CEO of a popular social network that sells your personal data to political think tanks, Julian Nagelsmann. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> manager most likely to be a well-meaning stepfather who's struggling to connect with his stepson because he's not his real dad, Chris Hewton. <laughs> 
which is harsh, but rather rather nicely works. And finally, manager most likely to ill-advisedly take over the dance floor at your cousin's wedding, Alan Pardew. Definitely, yes. Professionally Pardew. Could I add one from Twitter that we've received recently from Cameron Hill, the army general character who says things like, stop with the science, we need action, or let's just nuke (laughs) him, Sam Allardyce. Yes. Back to basics with Sam Allardyce. Um, I have been also wanting to mention this from Chris Lomax for a while, so here we go. When discussing likeable players, can you remember we brought up Andrea Pirlo? We did. And in passing, mentioned that he'd certainly be included in a select 11 of footballers with great hair. So, here comes Chris. Morning, gents. This was briefly mentioned, so of course it had to be created. Without further delay, here is my greatest hair 11. (laughs) I am a heterosexual man, but I am aroused by this team. (laughs) Says Chris. Uh, you may well be as well, the three of you, after I mention it. Goalkeeper, Gianluigi Buffon. Obviously. Oh, yes. uh-huh. Three centre-backs, Sergio Ramos, David Luiz and Carlos Puyol. So I think Chris rather likes the crimped look. Uh, right midfield, David Beckham. Centre midfield, Andrea Pirlo. Centre midfield, Cesc Fabregas. Left midfield, David Ginola. Three up front, Antoine Griezmann. He's been in ads, so he must have good hair. Uh, George Best and Edinson Cavani. Keep up the excellent work from Chris Lomax in Bolton. Thank you, Chris. Good hair there is really just is really just a sort of synonym for long hair, isn't it? Lots of hair. It is for Chris, absolutely. If you have any uh, disagreements with that, do let us know. Well, Fabregas has just got... What about Marek Hamšík? Would you not put him in there? He's got it, tremendous barnet, hasn't it's he? A, it's with the mohawk. It's yes. a very specific yeah, yeah, sure. taste, yeah. But, it's, it but like you say, it's not just long hair flowing no. in the wind. It's and he's committed... He's committed Committed to it over time. He's he not been a fan. He has. Yeah, Marek, David, David Beckham's had several no, different types it, of yeah. hair. He's like so a footballing we're, Travis Bickle, isn't he? Really. Marek, Marek Hamšík yes, decided yes. that hair reached its peak with some forty-one, and, and <laughs> yes. has stuck with it loyally ever since. Yeah. Music yeah. arguably reached its peak with some forty-one. <laughs> There's a good mm. case that that's not true. Seppiesmenu at gmail.com on any subject that you happen to contribute to, you will note that we'll talk about. The subjects that we've been talking last week and this week, uh, any of your correspondence that you have in the coming weeks. So bear with us on that. So then, back to our topic and part two thereof. Uh, what happened to the relationship between football fans and the media? It might be glasses rose-tinted with the hue of nostalgia, but didn't those who cover football used to be respected, even revered? But that deference seems to have become distrust. Whether it's a cry of fake news or bias, or perhaps just how social media allows these exchanges to take place in the first place, what's going on? And whose fault is it that the trust appears to have eroded, nay, withered in the footballing winds? What's happened to the relationship between football fans and the media? When did you become a journalist, Rory? 2005. I'd say the problem probably started about 2005, (laughs) where the conversation died and the shouting started even though it was mainly on, on, on Twitter. It, prob- it probably isn't far off 2005. I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure that... Well, we Twitter started in 2009, 2008, 2009? 2000, no, yeah, 2008, 2008. Yes. I think it became a thing, Twitter, football Twitter became a thing 2000, late 2009, early 2010, by South Africa 2010. It was a, it was a sort of recognised thing you have to do as a journalist. My, my, my first memory of, or my first recollection of Twitter really kind of coming together on a football subject was when the feed on ITV cut just as England scored against USA in their group stage game at the 2010 World Cup right, and there yeah. was sudden outcry from lots of people on Twitter about come on ITV we're trying to watch the football here yeah. mm. what was it like so let's try and set the scene for those younger listeners mm. uh, what was it like prior to Twitter and the propensity for most of these discussions to take place. And we talked about last week about fans and fans talking, but fans and the media going at it hammer and tongs uh, prior to social media. What, what, what was it like? Were they really revered? Were they the kind of people who would say something and we would all accept it as being fact and not at all tarnished yeah. by if we, any If we go back in time, who would we consider to be the great footballing journalists? So we go back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. Who, who are we talking about? Are there people that... People like Brian Glanville. Neil Custis. <laughs> all, all the Custises. <laughs> All of the trustesses, all the trust I. Yeah, uh, I think you, if you look at that generation of yeah, Glanville certainly had a had respect. Jeffrey Green at the Times mm-hmm. was was kind of the doyen of, of football reporters for a long time. McIlvanny, uh, McIlvanny, of course, would have been is the kind of voice of sport. Probably the greatest hue to ever talk about football. Almost certainly the greatest hue to talk about any sport. Um, yeah, Hugh, Hugh McIlvanny was the king of, was the king of the sports writers. Um, those three, I guess, are probably the three, um, the three greats of British sports writing. The, I mean, someone like Jenny Brera in Italy as well. Who, um, so I think there probably was a time when sports writers were revered 
to some extent. And sports broadcasters as well. And sports broadcasters were sort of national national treasures. And people didn't argue with them, or didn't have well, the ability to argue with them. They didn't have the ability to argue with them, but I do I do suspect that even in the 50s and 60s, when, when like Jeffrey Green was going to write a match report on Manchester United, if, it, if Jeffrey Green said Man United were terrible, I'm guessing the Man United fans reading it were like, well, no, we, no, they, no they bloody weren't. So that's how they talked in the 60s. Um, and it's all the cigarettes. All parts of the country. Yeah. <laughs> Far out, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, your, your assessment there is far, far out. out, man. That opinion is not bodacious. It's, that's the 80s. Come on. That's bodacious. Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted, Ted country, that. The, so I think there probably was a stage where they were broadly respected. Like, if you think about someone like David Meek, who we'd all have known, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, David was trusted. He was the, the Manchester Evening News' Man United guy for about 40 years I think well from the, from the Munich from Munich until, onwards yeah and he was still David was still working when I started in Manchester which was 2009 yeah he was still writing uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's programme notes um, pretty much until he left I think in yeah. 2013 and he was David Meat was a lovely man trusted by Ferdy trusted by the players trusted a, by the yes, club a delight and trusted by the fans and I think there, w- there, there was a generation of of those sports writers who were broadly trusted to, to give the but to w- at least be fair was he a United fan, fan? No idea. No idea. No and idea. That, okay. and frankly, and that's and the point. Matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. But the but the but the reverence that we hold these people in—that's not the correct grammar—is um, partly because we're journalists, or no, do, do I, genuinely no, I think, the fans? I think if you have if the you same speak to fans, certainly local fans to to local teams, that they would have they would mostly the ones old enough to have bought a paper, particularly a local paper, would have had. Um, would have had local reporters who they really trusted. And I think that, that funny enough, is, is is a theme that's still true in media today, even as we've seen the total atomization of the media landscape and this sort of decimation of a lot of it. That I think, if you think about the BBC, that the criticism of the BBC is always on a sort of local, on a, always on a national political level. And it's sort of, oh, the BBC's biased against Labour or Laura Coombsbury is actually a Tory activist or whatever. But people still check their local news for weather, for kind of local stories. I grew up in Yorkshire where Harry Gration was the, the local newsman and you would and not... it was briefly for Steve and I in the South. Yes. Really? Yeah, High yeah, profile yeah, yeah. transfer. And then he went back to... to Yorkshire because it was better, yeah. <laughs> He came down south just to knock the rough edges off. You know, we sorted out the diction a little bit and then they sent him back to you. Yeah, it so he now can speak proper. <laughs> I noticed he got a lot posher and didn't sound like didn't sound like normal people anymore. Anyway, so it's more of a trust of local report that they think, must know what's think, going on. We trust them more than local the local reporters. Big fish were particularly trusted across the news, yeah. and I think that applied in football as well. So if David Meat wrote about Man United in the MEN, even if he was critical, it was considered that he had the authority and the authenticity yeah. to be critical. Um, I guess part of the lack of trust now is that fans don't necessarily feel that same link to a journalist or an outlet. They don't necessarily feel that the um, that there's people speaking to them and for them quite as much. They're not; those journalists maybe do not don't feel as accountable. If you you know if you didn't like what David Meek wrote, you could write to the MEN and your letter might be published. And you might you probably knowing Meeky, you probably get a response. He'd probably get write a back visit. To you. Yeah, might come around to your to your house at night. No, David Meek wasn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was particularly meek when it comes to dishing out violence was, randomly. Yeah, to, meek by name, to not by nature. Do you like Minder? A bit like Minder. A bit like Terry Hardcastle. <laughs> The, um, a very soft teddy bear version of Minder. The, but the, that, the, so I think that bond has been broken between but that people extended, and the news they consume. That extended to the players because I, I remember even only about 15 years ago, um, Chris Bailey, who was the uh, Manchester City... Bales. Um, uh, he, he now works for Manchester City, but he was a Manchester City reporter for the Manchester Evening News. When he used to decide upon the ratings for the players, they used to get in touch with... Him to say, I don't think like Joey Barton. I think Joey Barton complains. was the famous yes, one. Yeah, remember? yeah, he got a he four or something. Got a four he was or five. Up in arms, yes, wasn't he? he Complain about it. And get, yeah. and so there was a connection at least where that happened, and so there, there was, was there was an understanding, even if there was criticism, that there would there would, the relationship was close enough that there could ha- there could be some sort of conversation between the two. Just there has been a huge amount of hilarity during what has attempted to be a very sensible point. It's because Rory mentioned Terry Hardcastle, and I just had to show him a picture that I took on the way. Just outside Hugh's front door of Steve stepping out of his car yep. and with shades on. And I said, just lean against your car because you look great. What I meant was you look like Terry Hardcastle. Yeah. So I took a picture of it and now Rory has just put it as my screensaver. I've put it as both his home screen and his lock screen. <laughs> so, but it, it does. On all maybe devices. put that picture. It's a good picture, isn't it? It's Is there any picture. way that we could meme that up? To uh, to make it some sort of DVD of Terry Hardcastle's favourite, uh, but you don't want to go into a, an interview room 
can no see windows that. with no. that guy sat across no. the table from you no. because you're in trouble. You're it's, in trouble. it's good that it was taken outside Hugh's house as well because the, 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 the rough neighbourhood helps yeah. add to the sort it's of pretty ramshackle. Or, you were yeah. saying something about Joey Barton but I wasn't was the, 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 There was. When there was <laughs> criticism levelled yeah. at the players in the form of a rating that they didn't like, there was still enough of an open channel where Joey Barton could complain to Chris Bailey yeah. about um, the... the the score that he was given there for is, that game. So there, a, there, is a, there was a stronger relationship. And that was, that was only, what, 12 years ago yeah. that that was happening? There's a very famous former footballer and now football club owner who made his England debut on the same day as Chinch, who once took the then Manchester United correspondent of the MEN to task about his, uh, his rating in the paper once, I believe, at Panathinaikos. Mm-hmm. Play, in, play, in the play, bowels of Panathinaikos' stadium. Players certainly, this is kind of off topic, but players certainly always read the ratings. I... I must, have I told the story about being receiving a call from Jamie Carragher's dad? Yes, you, you have. It's worth telling that. again. For, so Jamie Carragher's dad ran me to complain about a rating I'd given his son in the Telegraph. Um, that I stand by, Carragher was <laughs> that night. Uh, what did you give him? I think I gave him a five. Still not. Uh, still not. Not awful, when is it? A three? Four, it was, four I mean, I Very three. rarely gave anyone a three. Mm. Wouldn't give anyone a three. Too much respect for their work ethic. Tried unless, hard unless is four. Unless you saw me play, then Tried two and a half four. would come into play. The... Um, What's the starting point on the rating? I mean, it, it, do you start at six? six. Do you assume everyone's a six. And they basically championship manager. Championship basically. manager. Yeah, so basically, if you get through the game without falling over or so making five, a horrific five is to mistake. say subpar yeah. rather than okay. it being five the is you've not had a great afternoon. Four is you've been you've actively worked against your team. <laughs> <laughs> Three is, the, is three is your is the un- number that you're an undercover spy. <laughs> yeah, you're an undercover spy. You're a double spy. agent. Two is you are. I mean, you should not be doing this professionally. And one is take them out and shoot them. <laughs> and, and, and zero is you've thrown this game for a huge bung that's come in the form mm. of a brown envelope. I don't think I don't like it when when papers or websites give give stunt zeros. I think that's wrong. The stale starts at one. One is the lowest you can get. But what, what, how would you get a, a ten? How would you get a ten? Uh, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever gave anyone a ten. But there was a, li- a line of communication. I almost gave Messi a nine when he shot a hat trick and people had already crossed him. <laughs> there was a line of communication. It seemed to be. Does that happen anymore? I would suggest that that is not uh, happening anymore. And that is is that part of our discussion about how the media is treated by fans? It's an example of how the clubs have the clubs have pushed the media out as much as they can, partly through the media's own fault. I think that the um, the clubs have taken. The clubs have basically decided it's easier to have the media completely outside and not and offer them as little access as possible. Basically, as much as because they don't need that local connection with fans anymore that they used to find well, being so important through the people in terms of, like David Mead. In terms of local media, in particular, the clubs see them as direct competition. The clubs don't want you going to the MEN website; they want you going to Manchester United's website for your news. If you, if you, and I f- that's why I actually find the way that the, a lot of the local papers now cover their clubs really odd, because if you want propaganda. You will go to the club website. You've got. I know lots of fans who will who check their club, who tend to get news about their club from their club website. And to be honest, as much as journalistically that kind of appalls you, do you think this is not this is not fair and objective reporting? It probably makes your life quite a lot easier as a fan if that's where you get your news from. Like this is what's happening at my club. Is I is I check the website and I know what's going on. They'd all be fans of a certain age, and it's just they, they don't want to spend hours scouring every website in the world for little sn- snippets of information. Mm. It's just the club website, get a picture and then move on with their days. It's probably quite healthy to an extent. But the, the clubs now see the, the local papers as rivals, so they've cut the access. And I, th- I find it really odd that what the local papers have done in response is forego the part of that, their role that used to be holding the clubs to account and actually kind of speaking up to the clubs on behalf of the fans in the local area. That A lot of the local papers are now essentially fanzines and... All you get is this kind of endless kind of churn of positivity from from websites who've decided, well, we we will only get readers if we tell people what they want to hear. We want to be the fanzines. We, it's almost as though the, the clubs have said, right, you can't be local papers properly anymore. And the local papers have thought, right, which way do we go? Let's take the fanzine traffic. Let's get them. And they can come to us and we've got this sort of recognisable name. As someone described, it's not, it's not just the Echo, but... Uh, the Liverpool Echo is now effectively a Liverpool website, a Liverpool FC website with some local politics attached. That's that's basically what, mm. and it's true of the MEN. It's probably true in terms of numbers of, of the Yorkshire Post and but a lot is, of the, uh, the evening, maybe not the Evening Standard. That's got a slightly bigger footprint. It's a really challenging climate though for yeah. people because for 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 the people that run these organisations, we know people aren't buying newspapers off the newsstand. They are coming to the website, mm. but you need them to keep coming. 
because you need to be able to demonstrate you're getting clicks to, to drive your revenue, to satisfy investors. So they, they really are stuck but, you know, between a rock and a hard place because you've talked about David Meek, phenomenal writer who had the respect of everybody, but that was at a time when he was the voice was, of Manchester the United. Outlet, yeah. in the, but by equivalent now, there's many, many different voices writing with authority about Manchester United. So to go back to something we talked about last week, as a fan, you might attach yourself to one or two of those voices who you believe have a similar view or outlook of the club as you do. You're not possibly, you're not going to read everybody because you haven't got the time or the inclination to do so. So it, it, once again, as we were talking about, it galvanises and entrenches your opinion because you are seeing your thoughts replicated in print by somebody who you respect. So if you're driving traffic by being supportive of your local club in your local media, then that is proliferating the positive storyline, the one that slightly lacks in balance or true journalism um, on occasion obviously there is great journalism from within that local media so we shouldn't tarnish everybody oh, yeah, the no, same absolutely, blood, yeah, perhaps, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and yeah. there are occasions where that has been rightly heralded but if that side of things is proliferated does that mean that it's easier for fans to find what they want in terms of reading what they want to, to, to see and then everybody else gets tarnished with the same brush which is it's all fake news, it's all rubbish. Or do they understand that the point of view that they have is predicated on the fact that they are only wanting positive stories? I was going to ask you a question. Do you, have you been complimented by, say, say you've written a slightly negative or a, um, a, a view of a club or a player that you believe to be true? Have you had a fan of that club actually read something you've written and said, you're absolutely right? Or is, is 99% of it, how dare you talk about our club in this way our players in this way it, it, it's not because of you it's because it, of you of, of what you've written yeah, yeah because they're, they're, they're not, not dealing with local yeah, they're not dealing with local so we talk about the reading national stories here now so they think well how much have you got invested in my club but you if you write an honest article which is probably true do you ever get complimented by, yeah, by fans no, to say that's that's a really good piece of writing? I understand exactly what you're saying. To be and fair, you've changed my opinion. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Very, you very rarely get that, I think. But that's maybe because I'm not particularly good at arguing anything. But the no, you do you do get fans who will who will say the the one that you, the one that you you like the most is I don't in terms of praises I don't agree with you, but that's a good piece. That's what you that's what you want is someone. They're taking it on face value and so they're weighing we, it all yeah. up and then... Ju- yeah. Just saying, yeah, look, yeah. I, I don't agree with you. I don't necessarily... I don't really ever expect anyone to agree with me on anything. That's not... I don't mm-hmm. write things I expect people to agree with them. I, I tend to write things as I think them. Yeah. And if they're wrong... And it might be that I'm wrong. Kate always says to me, you always think you're right. And I always say to her every single time, if I thought I was wrong, why would I think it? It makes no sense. She also always thinks she's right because if she thought she was wrong, why would she think it? Um, no, you'd, you'd like you. I bet that really helps the yeah, argument. It really does, yeah. <laughs> that settles things down, doesn't yeah. it? The kettle goes straight on at that point. <laughs> no, good point, Rory. Yeah, well the, um, I disagree with you, yeah. but I, I'm take, getting the good biscuits out. We should maybe take that out. That probably makes me sound like some sort of awful husband. Um, no, the the one you want is so it, it, when you see people reply with great peace, there is part of me now that thinks, "What is it, or do, do you just agree with me?" Is it, is it? Is it? Have I ri- have I actually written something really good, or have I written something that transform, transforms to your bias? What you want almost more than that is, don't agree with you, but that's that's, but that's a good piece. That that kind of, or in a weird way, kind of means more now mm-hmm. because you, people are so conditioned, I think, to, to support things that they. That, that conform to what they to what they believe. Or any negative any negative thing you write, you just have to disagree with that straight away because it's against their club or their so players. So they instantly. <laughs> One of the things that I think has changed is that I th- is, and this is a product of Twitter or social media, is it is it seems to now to, and this is only from my experience, but it seems to to almost be the base assumption that you are writing something that is not honestly held, mm-hmm. and that kind of it is assumed that if you have written something critical or not an agenda or something, that you not this you've got an agenda or it can be that you've got an agenda that you hate the club or that you've done it basically to get as clickbait to okay. get to get a reaction. And it's really hard to, you, you see, click, you, you, you write something that's sort of 1,500 words long and people say clickbait. You think, well, it's a lot of effort for a click, right? reporting on something yeah. for a week, then writing 1,500 words. You, if you want to try it, feel free. But you I could have just made it. up some transfer speculation yeah. if I wanted to like, click. It would be, that's the thing about people also, you just make stories up. But you think, well, actually, I kind of wish I did because that would be really easy just to sit in my room and make stories up. To do that 10 times a day, it's actually quite hard. Write right, children's books, there's loads of money in that. Or Mills, well, maybe not children's books, I think they're quite hard. But Mills and Boone, oh. romantic novels. 
lo- not a lot of money, but you can just sit down and write some raunch. And it's not. It's, it's not got to be the right side of raunch, though. You can't go full raunch for Mills right. and Boone. You can't. Yeah, you don't. You, you it's, don't all, it's all got to be felt. Nothing's got to be acted upon. You don't upon. want too much tumescence. The um, the. <laughs> Anyway, you, Chinch could be your consultant for the raunch bits. You know, he, he doesn't. He's not. He's not backwards in coming forwards with the details. The, that's true. Yeah, basically, yeah. if Chinch would say it, yeah. don't put it in. Yeah. Yes. No, I yeah. think. I think that's one thing that I am quite regimented in my lovemaking. Though, so there won't be the variety you probably need for the uh, for the readers. Don't want to talk about this. The, I think there, there is an assumption now. There, that's that's how the, the, the main distrust manifests it, it's, itself among fans. I think is that there is an assumption not only that you have written something critical and perhaps unfair, does that, that will always have happened, but that you have done it on purpose. You asked Rory a question that he's too modest to answer, I think. And as somebody so who reads will, everything that Rory writes, here comes Steve. No, I will try and answer it on behalf of Rory and those who write intelligent, well-thought-out pieces for broadsheet media or the, the more intellectual football mediums that there are available. Or produce a podcast Podcasts of this <laughs> sort of nature. Is that as a general rule, it'll probably be a 50-50 split. There will be, there will be those... I, I, I always feel, if you look at the you know, timeline underneath the PC Britain, there will be a large number of people saying, brilliant, lots of clap hand emojis, lots of people tagging in their mates saying, you should read this, it's brilliant... Rory's knocked it out of the park again. Really great insight on our club. Oh, he's expressed in what he's expressed in this article. What I'm, I you know, I don't feel I'm clever enough, but he's, he shares my views entirely. Unfortunately, that gets drowned out mm-hmm. by those who seem utterly desperate to take offence mm. or find something misleading that isn't there, but they've interpreted it in the wrong way. And you get that an awful lot. I think people will read into. You made a point very recently. In your newsletter, I think about whether for Liverpool the yes. title—if if they only won the title this season—would that be seen as a disappointment? Because it was wrapped up so soon that the focus and the energy about what they could possibly achieve turns towards whether they could add the Champions League and the FA Cup to that as well. So your your out your outlook on what would be a successful season is skewed by how dominant they've been in the Premier League. And loads of people, Liverpool fans, took exception to that because they compl- they almost seemed to choose to misjudge the intention. So you got a lot more vitriol on Twitter about that because people just were, were incapable of understanding the message that was there. And so that's what happens is that it's, it's not whether it's compliments or criticism it's what people are choosing to read into something and how mm-hmm. they want to mm-hmm. interpret but, but it. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't, that's very nice of Steve, but we shouldn't, the media's not innocent in it. The media has spent a long time taking liberties with its, of, of its relationship with football and the, the, tr- the bar for truth, in, particularly in transfer reporting, is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I know we've, I've mentioned his name several times uh, as a joke, Neil Custis, warrior of, of Twitter and kind of, seeker of uh, or, or sort of purveyor of destruction of anyone with, with any kind of two-syllable word. Um, Manchester football writer Neil, on for the, the Sun, Sun. newspaper. Yeah. And I, I, see, I, I see Neil quite a lot and I get on very well with Neil. And this Put it this way, without Neil Custis, our lives would be a little much bit more the boring. poorer. Yes. But Neil, Neil had a go at Ed Malian, who's the guy who set up The Athletic. And I think The Athletic is actually quite interesting, the way their model's gone. It's quite an interesting example of, of the way that they're trying to ride the nature of the football fan media. Um, Neil had a go at, at Ed for various things, but one of them was you've never got a story in your life. As though there is only one type of story, which is the sort of dressing room bust-up or the yeah. transfer story. Or there's only one type of journalism. Or there's only one type of journalism, which is not true. That's, that's Ed, Ed, actually, to be fair to him, wasn't a bad story debtor in that sense, but he, he wouldn't have been up there with the, the sort of the very, very good... Or the, you know, or the, he wouldn't have been up there with the absolute top-notch story debtors of the, of the British media who, who break exclusives regularly. But Ed was good. He was a good journalist. And he's now running the Athletics soccer operation. So they but must have seen something in him they that probably they thought, thought was admirable. Not, not entirely untalented. And I, you, sort of th- you, you see Neil insult him and you think, well, if Neil, Ed might not have got a story. Have you ever put together a, an entire startup operation? Probably not, no. Uh, as, far as, Neil, as, far as, I'm, as far as I know, Neil's never done that. And I think that the, the irony with that for me as a journalist, it feels faint, faintly treacherous to say it, is that we, we, we are taught to see getting a story as some sort of great virtue. In my experience with the football media, whether that story is right does not necessarily seem to matter quite so much. 
And there's an awful, I think there's a, there were websites for a while that ranked transfer rumour accuracy. And the highest any paper got, I think, was the Guardian with 30%. That wouldn't, if you were doing that in politics, you, you, you would not survive in your job. Or you'd be I prime minister. Or but you'd be prime minister. Or you'd work for Fox News. <laughs> oh, yeah, or you'd maybe, maybe, maybe you would now. But then, so I think the, the media hasn't always done its, done its utmost to, to safeguard the trust that it maybe was at one point given by fans. I think the race over the last 10, 15 years to go online and try and, try and work out a way of coping online has probably helped the quality bar dip down, um, which has given fans leeway, I suppose, to say, look, we don't know... If you're reading something in, and a lot of the stuff that you read in your newspaper or on your website isn't true for quite a long period of time, there will come a point where you think nothing on this website is true. That's, that's totally natural. And I think but we, if, the, if, if the it's media one thing, hasn't done enough to protect itself from that. If it's one thing that you distrust, that's it. For, particularly if it's that one thing against your club or, or one thing that you presume to be against your club, whether it's because of nefarious reasons of the journalist that you have decided once has an agenda against your team or, or the things that we've just been discussing. But often that fan will read one thing on the Sun's website and it won't be to their liking. And for the rest of time, the Sun will therefore never write anything of any veracity. I, don't, yeah, I know what you mean, but I, don't think, it, I, I think it's much more honest than that. And I think it's a longer, a longer term process of the media being not unworthy, in certain circumstances, being unworthy of the trust it, has, it was at once given by by people. I think the media has actually, funny enough, if you read read media like history of newspapers and stuff, it's never really been fully trusted by people. There's always been a, there's always been a degree of hatred for journalists and a sense that they are in some way shilling a product. Um, I think if you look at a lot of the political coverage now, it's become so skewed that it's there is no pretense of of impartiality, which I think is a massive shame. Are the they not thinking general. about the fans? Are they, about, are they fighting amongst themselves to get a story out there or get yeah, people to come to yeah, them I mean, first? So they'll do anything this is, that this enables that to happen? This is almost a, a different podcast, I guess. One of the problems, I think, with, with the media, in my, again, in my experience, just my opinion, not necessarily right, is that, that journalists are far too concerned with what other journalists are doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And papers are far too worried about what other papers have got. So you'd quite regularly get phone calls. You'd have written a story about Gianfranco Zola's about to be sacked by West Ham. You'd have, you'd have spoken to people, you'd have, you'd have, I mean, I was never, I was never a story editor of any sort, so it wouldn't have been me doing it. But, you know, you'd, you'd, mm-hmm. you'd have a story of Gianfranco Zola's about to be sat by West Ham, and the first editions would drop at half ten of all the other papers, and the Telegraph or the Guardian or whatever, or the Sun would be saying, Zola's going to be given £100 million to spend in the transfer market, he's completely safe. And it's not impossible that, that your desk would ring you up and say, the Sun are running this, change the story. And you'd be like, well, hang on, I've, everyone, literally everyone I've spoken to says this, this mm-hmm. thing, you're effectively believing their story over mine. How does that work? And papers are far too worried about what others, what other papers have got. They they seem to exist in this world where they think everyone gets all of the papers. They don't. A lot of people back in the days when anyone bought newspapers yeah. got one paper. That was it. They wouldn't care. Your daily yeah, mail. Yeah. They wouldn't care what was in the Guardian. So they wouldn't know. In the digital age, that became more important, but you should still have the courage and convictions to back your journalists and say, this is what you think, right? You can stand or fall on it. You might be right, you might be wrong, but you're, we, we pay you for a reason. Um, and I think that, that that whole thing has kind of ended up creating an environment where fans gradually learned to believe that what was in the papers wasn't necessarily true. And once you've taken that lesson on board, you can... It's, it's a much shorter step to think that what is in the papers is not only not necessarily true, but has been deliberately written to be untrue. That's a much shorter journey. Right, yeah. So that, that is the, the, the biggest development it would seem over the course of the last 10 years since social media, where you don't, uh, you might not trust the story, you might not believe the story, but to proactively go out and say that the motivation of that writer was to do something against their club or their worldview. That, that is the thing that has developed over the last few years. That is the, the thing that has completely eroded the trust between one and the other. So is there any way of redeveloping this relationship between the media and fans who are predisposed now against anything that certain publications or writers for certain publications, and they don't necessarily have to have any sort of kind of through line between them, don't have to have any consistency as to, as to why they dislike that person or that uh, that publication. It's just simply that they've, they've seen once before that, something that they didn't like and therefore in perpetuity they don't trust anything that comes out of the mouths not because it's not true it's because that person is deliberately setting out to write something which is against their worldview or their so or their uh, their beliefs Steve or their club on, Steve touched on it last week with the filter bubble that you have where you you now have access to lots of new sources that are 
are actively, openly partisan. So you're more inclined to believe them. Does at least you know that if they're critical, that they're, you know that they're criticising the club from a position of affection, whereas you can never be entirely certain with a journalist. A lot of fans are really concerned with who journalists support because as though that's the key to understanding their motivations. It isn't really. There's a, it tend, as we talked about before, it tends to be much more who you know, who you like, who you want to protect that, that can affect what you write. Um, but the other thing I think is, is if you take that filter bubble effect and then the fact that so many people are... So many of these conversations are played out on social media, where people are not only there to—they're not—they're not only there to defend their club, but they are identified by their club as people. That is their avatar: is is the Man United badge or the Arsenal yeah. badge or a picture of Jorginho, which incredibly makes them immediately more trustworthy to other followers of that club yeah. than somebody with genuine contacts and insight and yeah. ability to construct a well-thought-out article it's their that covers chance, that story. That's their way of saying that they are protecting their club, that they are fighting for their club. That is being a fan. That is being a fan in a, tw- in, in a sort of seven-day news cycle. And in terms of answering your question about whether we can turn the oil tanker around, the problem is, is however hard journalists and journalism might work to rebuild that trust with those consuming what they are writing or what they are talking about, the problem is is that all the, th- the time that consumers are clicking on fake news or made-up transfer stories or the kind of things that they're desperately saying, all, all the time saying, we, we, want more, we want more trustworthy information coming out of our club via the filter of journalism, yet we're clicking on all of this other stuff over here, then how can newspapers, websites, radio programs, television, focus on providing that more trustworthy information if it's not getting them the clicks, the downloads, the, the, the ears and the eyes that are what they define success by. So the consumer has a part to play in rebuilding that trust as well. What I don't understand is that there are so many, as we've just said, it's a prol- proliferation of media outlets via the club or via local media who are supportive of that club of positive propaganda-like news items. But there is nothing more true about them as there is about something that comes to be against you or something that you assume is against your club because it doesn't doesn't end up being true. So if, if you are a club website and you are saying everything is great and then it turns out that everything is not great, those same fans don't then have a lack of trust in that. It's where you lay your trust, isn't it? And they, they seem to think, well, they'll forget a, a fact that will come off a club website that isn't correct. They'll conveniently forget that. But if a, another website were to do that, they probably wouldn't go back to that website again. So but again, they must, they must be putting all untrue. their... Tr- Absolutely, but they're putting their... their tr- in what they believe, they trust more than any... They probably distrust maybe everybody, but they probably think there's more of an element in what their club are producing... But then the clubs can play on that as well and they can put stuff, any stuff out I there. Think, I think the fans I are going to believe it. But the only point I'm making is that if, if you are to, to use truth as some sort of standard bearer, you are making your decisions and you tell yourself that you're making your decisions based on the, 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 the reality and the truth of what is being delivered to you. Mm-hmm. If you are so desperate to make that the totem pole of your worldview that you are so very willing to get rid of it when you are assessing the information that you do, you are happy to read, which may turn out to be just uh-huh. as untrustworthy because it comes from a place which is genuinely not I, focused on the truth. I don't think the club websites are particularly... I mean, relevant's not quite the right word, but the club websites are trying to do something else. They are, they are in the same way as you wouldn't get your news on how a company is performing by going to that company's website and being like, oh, this company's website is really fancy and says that everything's great and here's a speech from two months ago by the CEO... You, you, I think fans understand that the club websites contain specific types of information that are not. It's not a full. Pull your money into the Lehman Brothers. <laughs> oh no! What's happened here? They told me it was great and it was going to crash. I should have read the Financial Times. Damn it. 404, page not found. Yeah. I've, ju- I've just booked with Thomas Cook because they had a brilliant website. The, um, oh, it's not funny. The, it's not funny. But Hayes are doing all right out of it, aren't they? Mm, they are. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Can I, I ask Chinch a question? Yeah. Mm. Oh, sorry. Chinch, when did you start hating Manchester City? 
Hating Manchester yeah. City, I have never hated Manchester City or any other football club. Because I ask you that question, in, in the build-up to the recent Manchester derby, or the most recent Manchester derby, mm-hmm. uh, we, we were tagged on Twitter into a conversation in which a Manchester City fan had said, oh, I've, I've just uh, seen the highlights of the, the famous 5-1 and the glee and the joy on Andy Hinchcliffe's face as he scores that fifth goal. What did we do to him? Why does he hate us now? And someone had obviously like, seen this and linked us into it because we've had conversations along this line in the past. But it demonstrates that, that demonstrates the depth of the problem that we are talking about, mm-hmm. is that this football fan believes that the club that employed you half a lifetime ago should still be the focus of your admiration and your attentions mm-hmm. now, as much for you as it is for that person, even though as we've talked about in the past, on a match day, your loyalty, your team is Sky Sports. My job. My job. We've talked about this. And again, yeah. So, so if, But that's, that's a somebody, demonstration. Is that this, because he doesn't back us to the hilt week in, week out on Sky, he hates us. Yeah. But why what do fans we do not, to him? Why yeah. do fans not understand that there is a view of fans, which is of value and relevant to this conversation, but there are other views which are just as legitimate... And it's like almost like the, why do fans not understand that? Well, why does that fan not understand? And, and Twitter well, isn't all Twitter isn't all, all society. Fans, yeah. Yeah. But if, they, all if I sat down with that and we talked it through and said, so what are you basing this on? They wouldn't have anything to base it on. No, and no. then also I explain my situation, what I do now. Tell me, there isn't. They probably would. Would they see, or would they still say, no? Nope, no it's no, clear you that you, you hate the you club. You hate the club. And no matter what I say or what I do or explain it perfectly. Well, they would not have that, would and they? And that's what the consumer has win. got to meet us in the middle. Yeah. Or at least come a bit of the, the way. The, and this is the, the problem the about not, not having an ability to understand that there are other points of view. And this is a society problem, and it's manifested particularly in social media and football. But there, you have a legitimate view. But I'm going with my, my truth. Yes. I might be wrong. And tell me if I'm wrong, and we'll discuss whether but I'm wrong. But that fan... Yeah isn't also saying no, of course not. I might be wrong yes it's my truth yeah. but I might be wrong but you so can't that's win what Steve's then. saying how, how, about how, it's got to be a two way street both, then, both I, had a, yeah, I had a great yeah. conversation after, after City got banned by UEFA with a fan who I think thought I, I, I think I wrote a piece saying basically that City don't have a choice but to fight it because they can't if City hold their hands up and say actually do you know what do you know what, lads? You've, you've kind of got us here we did cheat and this is Manchester City who we should all point out have not at any point questioned what was in the emails that were taken by football leagues they've, they've questioned the they said they're out of context they've not provided the context and they, they've not said that they, they, yeah. they're not real they've just said that they were obtained illegally and it's part of a clear and organised attempt to blah 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 I mean, give us a, you could have cleared it up really quickly lads, give, us, the context. Give, us, give, just give us the reply yeah, just show us, show us how the cut and paste just has show, done show you a disservice show us the bit where it says I'm going to get in real trouble for this this is me asking for, asking for problems show us Safe the bit space. in that email after they say, well, ADUG will pay 57 million of the Etihad sponsorship, show, show us the reply which says, oh, no, we can't do that because it, it would be cheating FFP. If that's the context, then you're fine. But if it's not, mm, problem. Anyway, I had a conversation with someone about who said, you know, have you, have you, have you trans- as though I kind of desperately want City banned from Europe? To be honest, I don't really. I think that would be quite an annoying story to have to deal with. But the, um, It'd be a bit naff if they were the reigning also, champions of Europe and they, were and they weren't involved. But yeah. also, just on a purely basic level, and this, to be honest, is an insight on how, most journalists, how most journalists work. City's quite close to my house. so, so <laughs> yeah. It's quite it's, useful going to Champions League games I, at the Etihad. I'd probably rather go to Champions League games at the Etihad than, for example, Molyneux, because it's further away. And that's, that's what's important. Also, the food's very good in the sample part. Yeah. The, the, the food is good. I mean, really, that is the base level that we're starting at. I don't at, want to bring people. this back to the M6, as we talked about two or three weeks ago, but have you ever sat on the M6 at rush hour to try to get an evening game at Molyneux? It's awful. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. awful. I don't want to do that. I'd rather go to the Etihad. I know the back routes through one time, <laughs> One time, Chinch and I were coming back from Molyneux, and uh, they closed off the access road from uh, the junction to the M6. We couldn't get on the M6. No. A nightmare for all concerned. We're stuck in a car. With and people say nurses have it tough. Exactly. <laughs> but the anyway, I had this conversation with this guy. He said, "What you know, you, you, you've, you've declared that we're guilty and blah blah blah." I don't think I'd, I don't think I've really done any of that. But has it ever has it ever occurred to you that City might be innocent? And I said, "Yeah, it has. Of course, they might be innocent, and they will get a chance to yeah. prove it." Cast. Has it ever occurred to you that they might be guilty? No answer. And then had another fan chimed in as they tend to, and you know, I said, "Well, what will you do if, if it?" And he said, "What will you will you will you wish you were a traction if um." if City are proved innocent at Cass. And I said, well, it depends what I said, and mm. all, all honesty, depend, if they don't offer a technicality, no. If they don't offer, don't offer a sort of abusive process or UEFA haven't done this right, no, because that's not, that's, 
that's not you being found innocent. That is the trial collapsing. But if they are found, if they provide the context that says, no, we can't do that, because that, that would contravene FFP, then yeah, happy to say that this has all been some sort of awful UEFA conspiracy. What will you do if they're proved guilty? Well, they won't be. <laughs> yeah. well, well, what if they are? So you can't, well, you can't well, win. Well, they won't be. Yeah. We won't be, because... Because that would... Because without... Ferran Soriano said that they're not guilty, so, so that's good enough for me. Without being a d my identity is not tied up in Man City being innocent or guilty. It doesn't actually make any difference to the way I, to the way I live my life, particularly, if Man Manchester City get done for breaching FFP. It, it, it's fine, I, I haven't invested a lot of my personality in it. Whereas there are people out there, and it's not all fans by any stretch of the imagination, we have to make that point really clearly, who have chosen, effectively, or in some way been kind of corralled into investing a lot of their identity in these issues and therefore any kind of dissenting voice in the media is not only the opposite of what they think it is done out of malice or spite or some sort of agenda and it has to be shouted down and that is where they, they are they are pre-programmed now not to trust what they see in the media if it is dissenting and it's exactly the same pattern as has happened in in politics where you see it much more clearly where Every issue is assumed to be politicised and you, you have this sort of conspiratorial sounds pejorative and it's not meant to, but this kind of conspira this conspiratorial mindset where everything you see that you don't like is in some way not only a contrasting view that you disagree with, which is fine and totally normal and that's how life works. Some people don't think what you think, but it is also proof of a moral shortcoming and is done on purpose for some nefarious aim. And that is where I, th I think a section of football fans have come to. And I don't really see how the media can fight that. I think what's much more likely is that the media will go along with it and exacerbate it. And without criticising the athletic, I think it's interesting to, n to see the way they have chosen to cover clubs is effectively rivalling the fanzine, local paper, local expert. It hasn't really happened yet, but let, for example, Sam Lee, who's the... The, this Man City guy for the Athletic, who's a really good lad, lives nearby, but in South Manchester, can't be all bad. Um, good journalist, not a problem with Sam Lee at all. What does Sam Lee write if City are found guilty? Because that whole model relies on you having a journalist who can attract fans of a specific... There will be some people who are subscribing to the Athletic for people like Danny Taylor and Ollie Kay and George Colkin who write across clubs and do the sort of big broadsheet things and dip in and out of different things, and that, that, that is a, sec a section. But the, the guys who are, the reporters who are club-specific are meant to generate subscriptions. You are not going to generate subscriptions by criticising a team. That's not what fans want to read. And people will, as Steve has pointed out, people are, will migrate towards what they want to read. So what does The Athletic do next season when Liverpool are 10th after 20, after 20 games? What do they do when Klopp has to be, you know, when it looks like Klopp has to be sacked? What do they do when, I mean, United's a weird example because I think there'll be half the United fans, if, they, if the Athletics suddenly called for the sacking of Solskjaer, I think there'll be a portion of United fans who'd be like, yeah, this is right, this is what should happen. What do, what do you do when Harry Kane leaves Spurs? What does, what does, what does Jack Pitbrook do? Does he, does he say that this is great for Spurs? You get somebody else to write it. You just, so, <laughs> and that, but that, I think, is the way it's going increasingly as, as the media, the media will follow the money to an extent in terms of the nature of coverage. So I think it's much more likely to follow that route of you have an expert on the club whose job it is in part to defend the club. And that misses the whole point of local media, whether that's local media working on behalf of a national title or an international title or local media working for a local paper. That The job is in part to hold those clubs accountable and to ask, to ask the questions that fans... To reflect that fans are allowed to worry about their team, to reflect the fact that fans are allowed to think that the team is playing badly and to ask why. And that bit, I think, gets lost. Well, you've you described journalism. Journalism is to, to, to hold those to account who are that, in positions of... That's, and that, but that's, that's very grandiose, and I don't do that. I never but, hold anyone who's in power to account, so but, I can't but, say that. But you, you are talking about something that is reflected in all of journalism, not just yeah. football journalism, and the, and the, and the point that You're politics... You're there to ask questions. Yes, the point that politics... Uh, makes about this is that you have just very articulately and eloquently described what is distilled down to the, the principle of fake news. Fake news isn't just a saying, I don't believe it. Fake news is used um, as this phrase to illustrate that everything outside of your own belief and what you are told by the media that you consume that adheres to your worldview and confirms everything that you want to believe, not only that everything outside that isn't journalism, which what fake news says that it's not journalism, it is merely there to provide 
it is a bad faith argument, merely there to provide a equal and opposite fake counterpoint to what you are talking about, what you are seeing on your favoured news outlets. So you can't, you cannot. This is what Steve's saying about trying to get some sort of middle ground where you have both going half the way to meet in the middle. If you have your the, your favoured media elements dismissing anything that isn't that point of view as fake news. Mm. Others watching that should say, well, you're just basically saying that you're just fake, you're just the opposite fake. But that you are suggesting that everything outside that is so untrustworthy. Then how are you ever going to get to a situation where that journalism, that holding to account, that writing the negative article about your local team has any value because it's being completely dismissed out of hand? And that, that is the issue going forward. Yeah. Is that the more ensconced a fan or a, a person with a political belief gets inside their own bubble, their own echo chamber, is that everything that exists outside that echo chamber is going to be of so little value that there will be no bridge to be built over that yawning chasm. Before you blast Miguel on Twitter about a piece he's written about your club saying, oh, you never write anything like this about our rivals, just double check, check what he's written <laughs> about well, your rivals. That's a really good point because the, the problem that you, you often get is that people are not, and again, some fans, not all fans, are not aware of what has been written about teams they're not interested in. They, they, they understandably haven't followed the narrative around I mean, Steve West doesn't Ham even read my read stuff. It's really stuff. offensive. But you then, it's then assumed if you're criticising... Should have just kept that to myself. This is going to be a flipping stick to beat yeah, me with all you for can, a week. All you if can you're do is hold the mirror up to what they're saying to you. Like you're saying about, well, what yeah, happens yeah, if Man City yeah. found guilty? No answer. Yeah. There has to be... An, you should have an answer to that because yeah. you can see what I'm saying. But if they just say, well, I just want to say what I want to say, I'm not even going to listen to what you say to me. There's, there is no way forward. But the the... There is a genuine problem with you write something critical of one club and you, you're told, well, this didn't happen when Arsenal were, you know, when, when they were went sits without anything. Did, did, did you really miss all of that? That whole like month's worth of a new cycle of Arsenal in crisis, all the cracked badges on the papers. Like this gets written all the time. No club is undercovered. No club is underscrutinised. No club is escapes censure when things go wrong. If anything, for all of them, it's all a bit too superheated. For every single, particularly big club. I think you have an argument if you're the you're a fan of a smaller Premier League team or anyone in the Championship or below that you are probably undercovered and underrepresented by the national. What's media. their local media like? Is that much more likely to be a little bit more critical because they don't have the yeah, issue I about what the, what exists outside their bubble? The Athletic did a brilliant piece on Birmingham City a few weeks ago, uh, which mentioned the fact that the Birmingham Mail, I think, had done a brilliant piece on Birmingham City and what was going on. So I think that there are still out there, there are st and, and don't get me wrong, the MEN and the Echo still do good stuff. I'm not saying that they're completely useless. I think the Chronicle has been excellent f in Newcastle for, for providing sort of accountability for Ashley. That's a slightly easier thing because they have a... They, this is A group of fans very much sit on their well, side on well, that argument. Well, yeah, but also it's easy for... Journalistically, it's easy to pick a, to pick a way through there. You can, you, can you can reflect bad performances and you can attack someone who was unpopular, which is the dream. Yeah. And if things go well, you can just not credit Ashley and be like, things are going well, but also we can still attack Ashley. You can kind of have your cake and eat it to an extent. Yeah, you can do... The, the, in, this is in spite of Ashley, which we saw with yeah. Rafa Benitez, yeah, exactly, yet yeah. we're not seeing with Steve Bruce. Yeah, exactly. There are still there's local papers still do still do do good stuff, but there is there is a tide that is washing them in one direction, and that is that if you want to compete for those clicks, you have to be positive, broadly positive, and that I think gives you might give you authenticity to the fans, but I don't think it gives you. It, I, I think it comes at the cost of your authority. Uh, last week you mentioned this is how we finish our conversation about writing to Twitter, being critical about fans, being critical about media. What what is it when somebody Rory writes? to Twitter and why is that something that has given you pause over the course of the last like few a, months like a bear um, the <laughs> the no it's, it's just something I've noticed that I think you, you, you tend to get a lot of pieces now but journalists spend a lot of time on Twitter and are, are probably too aware of what's happening on Twitter and I think it's a weakness of, and it's certainly a weakness of mine like I, I take I, I take too seriously what I see on Twitter and I've noticed quite a lot of journalists who I think are really good journalists writing pieces that not that aren't quite straw men arguments because there is there is this opposing view. Writing pieces critiquing a logic or a theory or a sense that they have that they have been exposed to by fans of a club on Twitter, and I think what we what we're in danger of doing is thinking that more pe that that is representative of a greater swathe of the population than it actually is. And what you end up doing is seeing quite a lot of these quite a lot of pieces that you think well actually I don't, I'm not sure that was that was a the theory that you're disproving. I don't think it was a particularly widely held theory. I don't. I mean, you're you're kind of taking the thoughts of. 
I don't want to say maniacs, but let's say let's maniacs. say let's say <laughs> particularly ardent football fans and treating that as the norm. And I don't think that is. And I think it's it, one of the things Twitter can do is is kind of shift the window of what we think is normal thoughts to the extremes. Because the stuff that stands out is are, are the extreme bits, and you you do find them. You you do see you do know you see them you notice them in, in your responses and you are tempted to kind of contradict them but I think that's really dangerous because it then in a way normalises those ideas as being worthy of discussion and to be honest there are a few of them that that are just not worth talking about so there's there's conspiracy theories about like David not to use City then but David Gill being involved in the Man City FFP thing he's not so just ignore it. But again, it's that you can draw the parallels between journalism and politics because yeah. we we see this in politics that you know people are basing entire campaigns around what vociferous members of their constituency might feel, and they are treating that person's views as something that is as across a broad yeah, yeah. spectrum, and and it simply isn't, and they're they're nailing their colours very firmly to that mast, and and it's potentially to the detriment of them, and it could be to to the detriment of society much much further beyond that and and it's yeah it's exactly the same in in football journalism you you've got to be able to see the bigger picture and you know again just got to let's try and meet in the middle somewhere and I, and i think the other thing that's important is that the, the media can do a better job of explaining itself to fans yeah, to the way that, before, that yeah. in the way that it works there yeah. was a case after city real madrid that i saw sid Lowe, the guardian's well respected and much loved spanish correspondent his piece was on real madrid from that game and he had all these responses to people saying, I can't believe you've not even mentioned Manchester City. And Sid was sort of saying, well, does he polite? Was saying there, are, there were two other, two other Guardian journalists there and they have written about City. You can read that there. And he saw the people sort of saying, well, uh, yeah, but, yeah, but I can't believe you, you. I know you do Spanish football, but I can't believe you didn't even mention City. And Sid was like, no, no, no. I mean that my job was to do Real Madrid. And then these other two guys, Barney and Dave Heitner or something, have done City. Yeah, but you should have mentioned City. And you think, well... But the, maybe journalists have to explain that a little bit, that there are, that sometimes it's a kind of organisational thing that you take one subject from a game or that your job is to, so we don't do, I don't do match reports. I'm, I think I do one match, one match report a year, which is I do a, a, just about a proper match report from the Champions League final. That's it. We don't do, I don't do a match report. There's no headers and volleys. There's no kind of run of play stuff. It is colour and comment that's what I do from, from games and sometimes maybe we should explain that to fans that I'm not don't come here if you want yes tell me, them beforehand basically, I'm not going to explain to you explain what happened in this match because yeah. I'm going to assume you've watched it but again there's got to be I, I do agree with you general principle and it's something that we've tried to do to try and explain the journalism yeah. from our side so that you can hopefully appreciate what different people are doing but equally Sidlow Spanish football writer for The Guardian should not have to explain yeah. why he mm-hmm. has written about that match from a Spanish point of view. It, it, it can't be all one way. Once again, Stephen, just like he did last week, has brought it all back to the essential role that Set Piece Menu plays in, in your, yeah, your weekly yeah. football yeah. discourse. Yeah. It's now time for Nevermind, this will ruin it. Now time for Nevermind, Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Well, more and more of these stories are, are not from my playing days. Shall because I, shall I amend the script? You need to amend the script. I was going to. I was going to send you a memo this about day this. On. Yes. When have you ever sent a memo? You don't even respond I send to the many, text on the many WhatsApp memos, group. Many memos. Just not. So to it you. tells the tale from his playing and broadcasting days. days, with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. What this about just life in football? <laughs> life, life in soccer. This life is when soccer. Andy talks uh, about player pronunciations, players' names. Well, this is a there's hill been, on which I will die. There's been several issues that we've had with certain players and fans getting very, very annoyed that we're getting players' names wrong. So what we do now is, all you can do is go to the player and ask them, if you score the winning goal in the 90th minute, what do you want me to call you? So the first person I spoke to about this was Anthony Knockart Knockart. The big debate, championship to Premier League, Premier League to Championship. It seemed to change season by season. Did you say, Anthony, you're going to be relevant now, so we're going to need to know how I to said, get your Anthony, name right. my, my friend, people are realising how great you are. So can you, can you tell me how to say your surname? And this was um, a Huddersfield-Fulham match uh, in the tunnel. Collared him. He clearly knew who I was. Uh, I think he knew. He called me Danny for some reason. Anyway, Danny, forget that. So I said, Anthony, can you tell me how, to, how, to, how, you, how you want us to say your name? So he said, well, really, it's Knockett, but that's too hard to say. So I said, what, Knockett? 
And he said, yes. <laughs> so I said, well, clearly, it actually isn't that hard to say. And he said, yeah, yeah, but, but fans just find it easier just to call me knockout. I said, but that's, that's clearly not right. But if you, again, you score the winning goal, your family, you watch it back, the fans, you want me to get it wrong, basically, because you don't want to educate and inform. Your he said, yeah, it's just far too easy, so just go with that. So, right, you want me to get it wrong to get it right. So I thought, well, okay, I've got to go with that. He didn't score the winning goal, so it didn't matter. That'll teach him. Um, <laughs> Tom Treble, Tribal at Norwich. It's Tom Treble, but it, written down, it T-R-Y, Bull. So it looks like Tribal. So all the Norwich fans had clearly seen this written and said, I don't care what he's saying. He did an interview in, when he played out in Germany saying Treble. So, again, we do a bit of research, actually speak to the player himself and say, how do you pronounce your surname? Treble. Okay, yeah, and we saw that in Germany. Fans weren't having it. We were getting accosted by Norwich fans coming over saying, you're getting, you're getting his name wrong. No, 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 you're getting his name wrong. There's 20,000 of us, yet 20,000 of you are getting it wrong. His name is Treble, not Tribal. It, it says, tri yes, yes, of course it does, but that's not how you say it. They wouldn't have it. And eventually, I think, Tom Treble's wife actually said, look, it's far easier if we just go with what the fans want to go with because... Really? Yes, and just said, just, just leave it at that because it's, we, we can't put this right. And, we, and in commentary, I remember working with Dan Mann a lot. He, he, again, was not willing to go down the track. He said, it's Treble, I'm going to call him Treble. And it did cause a lot of problems. I had people coming up to us and saying, you've got it wrong. We had to show them this interview from Germany. Oh, even then, they were kind of thinking, well, he, he said that then. No, but he said <laughs> that then because that's it, his so. name. Yeah. But the, the one we had, the funniest one we had was a, um, a whole city game. Uh, and there's Jackson Irvin, Jackson Irvine. Mm. It's the same person. It's not two different people. Um, so we've always had this problem about season by season, is it Ir Irvin, is it Irvine? So we were doing a little, I was doing, we do like these close-ups before kickoff and attacking midfield, who's quite an influential player. So I thought, right, I'm going to do a little bit on, on Jackson Irvin. I'm going to have to ask him. And he was doing the pre-match interview. So he comes into the interview room. So I said, Jackson, we're doing this little piece. So you've probably been asked before. I'm sure you have. How do you say your, how do you want your surname said again? Because I'm doing this little piece on you. So he said, call me Jackson Irvin. No, Irvine. Oh, no. So he changed it within the space of two seconds. So I said, well, right. It seems as though even you're confused by all this. So I said, look, if you ring a restaurant up to book a table, what, what name do you give them? How, what, what do you say? And he said, it depends on what restaurant it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th I thought, what? What do you mean? You'd, you'd ring up an Italian restaurant and say one thing, and then ring up another and say something different. You clearly wouldn't do that. So in the end, he went with Irvine. So, but it will probably change mm. after that. But even even he didn't seem to know what his surname was. When he rings a restaurant, he uses different. Ne How massively confused? How can he not know what his surname is? How hard is that? How maybe, hard is it to, to actually he, go with and stick with one thing? Why do they keep changing it? Maybe he. Put tables under like George Lumphammer or something. <laughs> yes. George Lumphammer, or is it George Lumphammer? <laughs> see, this is the point. Again, I just couldn't. But he the likes, way that, he likes role play when he goes way, out for dinner. The way that he said, Jackson Irvin, no Irvine. Change. What a minute. Are you, what's he saying? How can, you, how can you have we, two different ways? We are all a little bit spoiled mm. by having surnames that are, there's, only, there's only really one option. You're a Smith, you're a Hinchliffe, you're a Ferris, you're a Wyeth. Yes. But. Irvine Irvine is what is like McLean and McLean like they are yeah but he will have a fa he will, surely his pet <laughs> he must have been, when he was at school he would have had a it would be one thing no, or the but other I, but I bet in Jackson whatever he's called defence that it gets confusing if people continually change it so you're probably you probably after a while you'll be like I don't really know how it's meant to be pronounced I can imagine that would happen yeah, but you can you can say actually my name is Jackson Irvine my name is Jackson Irvine my name is Jackson Irvine it's hi easy, yeah. Jackson Irvine okay. if he keeps doing that people probably think his name could well be Jackson what's, Irvin, what's, you know. What's really weird about that case is that it's actually spelt Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's an Antipodean spelling. And he has a lovely lilt as well. Who's oh, the Australian? Irvine. Irvine. It's quite confusing. Irvine. It would be easier to say Irvine, Irvine, Irvine. than Irvin. Irvine. 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 Yeah, it'd be Irvine. It'd be Irvine. Irvine. You should do it in an Australian accent. But uh, it, it's, it's, got, it's got to be a bit of Scottish in there, hasn't there? Irvin. Irvine is the, the Scottish element. That's what I would naturally... Uh, isn't Scottish Irving with a G at the end? I think it'd be... Remember, uh, remember, think uh, remember Andy Irvin, the uh, famous rugby player, because you love rugby, Rory. Andy Irvin, the famous f Scottish fullback, was Andy Irvin. So uh, just, again, if you ask the player, you can't do any more than say, what does your mum call you when you ring up a restaurant or your bank? What do you say your name is? Oh, it changes depending on the restaurant. Oh, brilliant. I might as well just call you anything. What I wanted to call him, we couldn't put to air. Hmm. Yeah, Jackson. Hmm. There's hmm. no way I'm going to do that. 
If you have any correspondence, please send it to setpiecemedia at gmail.com. And uh, please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy, and Rory, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece, Benny, for you to enjoy very soon indeed. There are many different extremes you can take. I, I do like the, the one which is... Sorry, was there some confusion... As a commentator... So were you confused who I was talking about? Did you know who I was talking about? Mm. When, when fans are really hammering you over the precision, whether you are using precision or not as, as to a player's name, so, d- did you know which player I was referring to? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, no con- there's no actual yeah. real confusion yeah. then. The responsibility is to identify players, yes. first and foremost. But I, I do believe this. you should work as hard as you can do, to do get it right. Pronunciation, mm-hmm. yes. Inflection, no. No, don't do accents. So you don't do accents, but you, uh, unless it's Irvine. 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 Which really is helpful. But it, pr- pronunciation, we, we should be able to do. Inflection, we don't need to do. And when somebody from foreign shores comes into this country and gives us an incorrect pronunciation of their name because mm-hmm. they either don't believe that English people are capable of it or just want an easier life, we should say to them, no, 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 we will make every effort to pronounce your name in the way that you pronounce it because we are respectful of your culture, mm. of your language, yeah. particularly because you are a foreigner on our shores and we should not be projecting the other way, which is to, to suggest that the English people know the best mm. regardless of what their point of are view you is and regardless of what kind of country they're from. It really makes me mad. Are you talking about Moise Keane, pretty sure? But, but it's like, it's like Aspilicueta, who everyone thought had a really complicated name, but now everyone just calls Aspilicueta and it's actually really easy to say it and yeah. it's not beyond the wit of even British people, to get it right. Beyond the wit of Paul Merson. <laughs> Possibly. But that's just because you can't speak English. <laughs>